Hello, everyone. Welcome to the very first episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. I am your host, Gunnar Hauser. And since this is the first episode, I'm just going to take a little time to explain what this show is about. Now, there's a number of podcasts out there that cover ancient history, and they cover it really, really well. This one is meant to be a little bit different because there are a lot of stories that I've encountered over the years, mainly ones from Greek and Roman times. That's the time period that I know best that are incredibly bizarre, and you just never hear about them. Not only do you not hear about them in a classroom, various things on cable or on the internet, on YouTube, that cover even topics like weird history, I've noticed that a lot of these topics that I'm talking about aren't covered at all. So that's how I got the idea to start this podcast. I figured that scholars know about these stories, but why should they have all the fun to themselves? Why not share them with everybody? because I think everybody can find something interesting in the kinds of things that we're going to be covering. And as I mentioned, the Greek and Roman stories are the ones that we're going to start with. I probably will, over time, branch out to other parts of the world, because every part of the world has an ancient history that we can reconstruct to one degree or another. And there are definitely weird stories that come from every single tradition around the world. Today we're going to be looking at heroes, legendary heroes of ancient Greece and ancient Rome. I'm going to start with a very obscure individual, but it's an insane story. This is Aristomenes. He's one of those individuals who has one foot in legend and one foot in history. Historians have looked at the stories about him. Many of them are very outlandish and over the top. But there are certain historical aspects of his tale that we can verify. I like to think of him as almost a William Wallace character from ancient Greece a kind of resistance fighter against oppression, the group doing the oppressing in this case, the Spartans. I'm guessing you weren't expecting to hear that name. We have many ideas today in the modern U.S. about the Spartans, about their heroism, about how they helped fight against the Persians when the Persians invaded the Greek mainland in the Second Persian War, the famous last stand of the 300 at Thermopylae under their king Leonidas. That story is true. But in the Aristomenes story, the Spartans don't really look too good. They are really the villains in this account, and it's very intriguing to see this reversal from what we're used to reading about. Our main source of information is from a travel writer named Pausanias. Pausanias traveled the Greek mainland at the height of the Roman Empire. Pausanias, in the course of putting together his travel book for Greece, preserves many local stories and legends. One of his travel accounts talks about a region called Messenia. Now, the Greek mainland is divided into a northern area, then there's a very thin bit of land that connects to the southern half, which is called the Peloponnesus. Messenia was in the southwest corner of the Peloponnesus, one of the most fertile areas of ancient Greece in terms of agricultural potential. It was a very prosperous place. The Spartans decided they wanted to take over the region. They coveted the fertile land that was there. They went to war with the Messenians, defeated them divided the land amongst themselves, but they also did something very extreme to the Messenian people. They enslaved them. They turned them into a group of public slaves that were called helots. If you're familiar with the idea of serfs in the Middle Ages in Europe, the institution of the helots seems to be very similar to that. The Spartans ground the Messenians under their heels. So a number of years later, the Messenians rebelled, and this is the Second Messenian War. Here's where our hero Aristomenes becomes part of the story. 
Aristomenes was said to have been a descendant of kings of Messenia. Aristomenes was incredibly physically strong, very brave, supposedly killed hundreds of Spartans himself, was able to get a number of other cities and regions and people of the Peloponnese to support the Messenian cause, and one of them was a region called Arcadia. The king of the Arcadians had a name very similar to Aristomenes's. It was Aristocrates. The Spartans bribed Aristocrates to desert at a key moment. There was a battle at a place called the Great Trench. The way Aristocrates did this was that he warned his soldiers right before the battle was about to erupt that they had seen bad omens because anytime a Greek army was about to go to battle, the commanders would have animals sacrificed and they would examine the internal organs, the entrails of these animals. They would look for signs from the gods, whether the battle was going to turn out well for them or was going to turn out badly for them. He claimed that the omens had been bad and that this meant that the army had to leave, but he said, wait for my signal and we will flee the battlefield. He wanted to help out the Spartans as much as he could in this battle, so he ordered his men to start fleeing back through the ranks of the Messenian soldiers. So you have to imagine them shoving past the Messenian hoplites, foot soldiers in their ranks of the phalanx. And the Messenians are yelling at him, where are you going, you cowards, come back. And it sowed so much confusion in the Messenian force that the Spartans won the battle handily. Now, Aristomenes and a small number of Messenian soldiers were able to escape. They made their way to a mountain called Ira, and they decided to use that as their new stronghold. The Spartans besieged them there, but the siege really wasn't a very tight or effective one, because Aristomenes and his men were able to slip out generally at night to do raids on the surrounding territory. They stole food, took captives and animals, and other loot and plunder that they would sell to support themselves. According to Pausanias, they were on Mount Ira for 11 years. Now, things didn't always go perfectly well for Aristomenes, but he always seemed to come out of things on top. During one of the raids, he was hit on the head with a rock, was knocked unconscious, and the Spartans were able to capture him. They decreed a terrible punishment for Aristomenes. He was sentenced to be thrown into the Chiodos cave to die. This was a place where the Spartans would throw enemies of the state to perish. The story is that the fall inside the cave was usually enough to injure victims so much that they had no way of trying to climb out, and then they would just die in the darkness. Aristomenes and several other Messenian captives were thrown into the Caiaphas cave. All the other men were so severely injured by the fall that they died soon after landing at the bottom of the cave. As Aristomenes was thrown in, an eagle swooped down into the cave, caught him, and used its wings to break his fall. So he really wasn't badly injured from the fall, but he's in complete darkness at the bottom of the cave, has no way of finding his way out, and he resigned himself to his own death. Then after being in the cave for three days, he heard a sound. His eyes are just enough to see a fox nosing around the dead bodies. Aristomenes realized there had to have been some easy way for the fox to get in and out of the cave, and he just had to find it. So he pounced on the fox and grabbed its tail, and it tried to get away from him, but he held on hard as he could, and it turned to bite him, and he just pushed his cloak into its jaws. The fox dragged him through the cave until they reached an opening. It was too small for a man to climb through, but Aristomenes was able to clear it out with his bare hands, emerge from the cave, and make his way back to Mount Ira, to the astonishment of his followers, and to the astonishment of the Spartans when they learned about it. He was captured again a number of years later by a group of mercenaries from Crete, some Cretan archers, and they used some spare bowstrings to tie him up, and they were going to take him to Sparta for a reward. They were staying in a house where there was a young woman who had had a dream before they showed up with their captive. She dreamt that a group of wolves were leading a lion that was tied up and that the lion's claws had been removed. 
And in the dream, she was able to untie the lion, find his claws, give him back his claws, and the lion kills the wolves. When she sees what's going on, she realizes this is the fulfillment of the prophecy in her dream. So she serves lots of wine to the Cretan soldiers, and they get so drunk that they all pass out. She steals a sword from one of them, cuts Aristomenes free, and he uses the sword to kill his captors. The girl's name is never given, but Pausanias says that Aristomenes' son later married her. Aristomenes fights hard and bravely and with great persistence and determination. But he learns that the gods have fated Messenia to fall. It is going to be ruled by the Spartans for a very, very long time. This resistance movement will not succeed. He learns about this from a prophecy from the Pythia Oracle up in Delphi. But he knows another prophecy, that if a certain act is done, there will be a time in the future when the Messenian people will be free again. There's a group of objects that could be seen as religious relics. They're not really too well described. The prophecy is if these relics are buried on a sacred mountain called Mount Ithomi in Messenia, that they will be rediscovered in the future at the moment that Messenia becomes a free land again, and the Messenians are free people. So Aristomenes did bury them in a secret location on Mount Ithomi. The Spartans were eventually able to capture the stronghold of Mount Ira. Aristomenes and his refugees made it to Arcadia. Aristomenes didn't yet know that the Arcadian king was a traitor to him. He figured he had fled the battle because he was just cowardly. So Aristomenes revealed to everyone an idea for a new attack plan against Sparta. The Arcadian king Aristocrates sent a messenger to Sparta with that news and all the information. The messenger, however, was caught on his way back with a letter from the Spartans as a response to Aristocrates. So now Aristocrates' cover is blown. The Akkadian people are furious that their king was a dishonorable traitor, and they stone Aristocrates to death. And they dedicated an inscribed tablet in a temple with a poem that had the first line of, Time has brought justice to the wicked king. The Messenian survivors have decided at this point that the war is hopeless. They get an invitation to come to Sicily to attack a town named Zonkli. They do this, but then the people of Zonkli are merged with them. They rename the town Messini. This town still exists on the north coast of the island of Sicily today. It's called Messina. Aristomenes did not go with them, though. He went to the Greek island of Rhodes, near the coast of modern-day Turkey, because one of Aristomenes' daughters married the king of Rhodes, a guy named Damagetus. And soon after his arrival there, Aristomenes died. There's a very bizarre story that after his death, his chest was cut open and his heart was found to be covered in hair. No reason given why they would have opened him up after death, but that's the story. It's not the end of the story for the Messenians, though. Hundreds of years later, the 4th century BC, the Spartans were defeated at the Battle of Leuctra by the Thebans. There were stories that Aristomenes' spirit actually appeared in the battle. A shield that he had dedicated in a nearby shrine was discovered again and used on the battlefield as a kind of relic. The Theban army marched into the Peloponnese. Although they were not able to capture Sparta, they were able to liberate the land of Messenia. And so a new city was founded called Messene, right at the base of Mount Ithome. The relics were uncovered, and the Messenian people began to return home. Many of them left Sicily, Rhodes, other places that they had scattered to. And so the prophecy was fulfilled, and Aristomenes' struggle prevailed hundreds of years after his death. Now we're going to turn to some Roman heroes, and these are also people who are not well known today at all. The city of Rome was founded by Romulus, and there's the story of the kidnapping of the Sabine women 
because everyone who lived in Rome when the city started was male. They needed women so they could have kids and keep the population growing. But the kidnapping of the Sabine women led to war with many nearby tribes. There was a leader of a local tribe named Akron, and he attacked the new city of Rome. But Romulus defeated him in single combat, took his armor as a trophy, did the first example of a victory parade that's going to be called a triumph in later Roman history. And he dedicates the armor to the god Jupiter. This is called the first example of taking the spolia opima, taking the arms and armor of an enemy commander in single combat. Sometime after Romulus's day, a general named Cornelius Cossus killed the Etruscan king of the city of Veii, Lars Tulumnius, in single combat cut his head off, stuck his head on a spear, and the Vans were so horrified that they surrendered immediately. The third account is in 222 BC. Marcus Claudius Marcellus, Roman commander, killed a Gallic leader named Veridomarus. Veridomarus led a coalition of different Gallic tribes, what almost called the Geisatai, and the Geisatai were actually known for fighting in the nude. Now, Veridomarus did not fight in the nude, or he wouldn't have been part of this story, because he did wear armor, Apparently an amazing suit of armor that was gilded with gold and silver. And so this is the best example of the spolia opima, the rich plunder, or best plunder. Marcellus killed Veridomarus, took his armor, and also dedicated it to the god Jupiter, as Jupiter the smiter, Jupiter Ferretrius in Latin. Now we have an interesting family of heroes as well. All three of these men, father, son, and grandson, had the same name, Publius Decius Moose. They were all connected to a very specific kind of military ritual called the Devotio. This is where, if the battle was going badly for the Romans, a Roman commander would decide to sacrifice himself. He would charge the enemy line alone, riding into certain death with the idea that he would kill as many of the enemy as he could, but he's dedicating, he's devoting his life to the gods of the underworld. And with his death, the tide of battle would then turn in favor of the Romans. So the oldest of the three, Publius Decius Muse, was one of the two consuls. These are important magistrates in the Roman Republic who had military duties. Both consuls for that year, because they elected two every year, were present at the Battle of Viserys in 340 B.C., one of them was Publius Decius Mus, the other was Manlius Torcatus. This was one of the battles in the Latin War. The Romans were fighting other Latin tribes who lived nearby. The region where Rome is in ancient times was called Latium, the land of the Latin tribes, and also gives us the name of the language of Latin. The battle happened at a place called Viserys near Mount Vesuvius. Mount Vesuvius is the famous volcano that erupted and destroyed Pompeii and several other Roman towns in 79 AD. Publius Decius Mus had had a dream the night before the battle. He dreamt that one of the consuls had to die for the Romans to prevail. So at a key moment in the engagement, Publius Decius Mus announced to his men what he intended to do, that he was going to do a devotio. Priests were summoned. Publius Decius Mus put on certain kinds of ritual clothing, and he rode off straight for the enemy line, where he was, as you would expect, killed. But this enabled the other consul, Manlius Torcatus, to win this battle. Manlius Torcatus actually executed his own son after this battle. His adult son had disobeyed orders and engaged in single combat, and had won. But because he had disobeyed an order, Manlius Torcatus felt that he couldn't make an exception even for his own son. So that's the first example of Devotio. The second time that it happened is 295 BC at the Battle of Centinum in central Italy. 
This was where the Romans were facing a coalition of many powerful tribes. This was a really serious situation for the Romans. The Etruscans, the Gauls or Celts, Umbrians, Samnites, these are all tribes from different areas of Italy, had all unified against Rome. One of the Gallic tribes was called the Senones, and the son, Publius Decius Mus II, we'll call him in this case, was leading the Roman forces on that wing against the Senones. He decided to follow his father's example when it looked like the battle was going very badly for the Romans, and he did a devotio. When he was killed, the Roman forces were rallied. They charged en masse against the enemy line. The enemy troops figured out what they had done. They figured out that this Roman had actually sacrificed himself. So by killing him, they fulfilled the sacrifice, and it works against them. So it's a morale booster for the Romans, but it hurts the morale on the other side, because they figure that the gods have abandoned them now. Battle of Centinum is not famous today, but if the Romans had lost it, they probably would never have gone on to dominate all of Italy. And that was the first major stage in the eventual Roman Empire. The third one was the grandson, Publius Decius Mus, the third, we will call him. He wanted to do a devotio, but ended up not doing one. We're now at 279 BC, and the Romans were fighting a war against Pyrrhus. Pyrrhus was the king of Epirus over on the western side of Greece. He had invaded Italy in an attempt to build an empire of his own. He was actually a cousin of Alexander the Great, and Alexander the Great had done his amazing military campaign decades before. Pyrrhus wanted to live up to that example. Pyrrhus had won several victories against the Romans, although he had taken very heavy losses every time. And that's where we get this modern idea of a Pyrrhic victory, where you win a battle technically, but you lose so much in the process that it's almost like you lost the battle. Because after one particular victory where Pyrrhus had many, many casualties on his side, he said, one more victory like this and I am lost. However, the battle that we're talking about in connection with the grandson was actually a Roman victory, the Battle of Asculum. Publius Decius Mus III made it known to his fellow Romans that he planned to do a devotio just like his father and his grandfather before him. But apparently somehow the information got over to Pyrrhus on this one. So Pyrrhus warned his men, hey, if you see any crazy Romans come rushing out against us all by themselves, don't kill them. Because if you do that, the gods will turn against us. You're just playing into their hands. To try to stop the possibility of even there being an accidental killing of somebody doing this, Pyrrhus sent a little message over the Roman line saying, we understand one of you is thinking about doing a devotio to the gods of the underworld. Don't even try it. If someone does, we'll just take them prisoner and then the gods will be angry at you. The Roman response was, we'll defeat you even without it. And it turns out they did. The Romans won the Battle of Osculum. Pyrrhus himself was wounded. He decided that Italy wasn't working out so well for him. So he accepted an invitation from some of the Greeks down in Sicily to go down there and to fight against the Carthaginians on their behalf. He only had some success down there too. Pyrrhus eventually returned to the Greek mainland where he made one last attempt to build an empire for himself. He was attacking the city of Argos and the Peloponnese when he was hit on the head by a roof tile thrown by a woman on the top of one of the houses. Houses had these terracotta roof tiles and sometimes they would be torn off of the houses and thrown down on enemy soldiers. So he was hit on the head by one of these tiles. It stunned him just long enough for an enemy soldier to kill him and cut off his head. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks to David at California Dingo Media for the logo and image. The musical pieces that you heard were Magical Gravitation from RoyaltyFreeMusic.com and the finale to Dance Macabre by San San by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Hope to have you back for the next episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser.